One of the reasons um, that Marx's analysis of the proletariat was so powerful is that the proletariat's not a bunch of victims. The proletariats are strong. The proletariat is strong, right? They are the the force for revolution and a force for overturning um, capitalism and ushering in a new socialist and then communist society because they control, basically because they are the producing class. They have that power and they can bring everything to the stop and they can do that work. And now it's like when um, in, say, the economies of the global north, when our primary, when the majority of workers are servants, that doesn't seem like on the one hand, yes, we can stop things, but that's not producing. That doesn't feel like we're producing a powerful future. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. I'm a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Great. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining me. It's a huge privilege to speak with you. I'm a huge fan of your work and I have been for some time. Um, what I wanted to talk about is with Sublation Media, the last month, we've been trying to look at crisis theory. And my own comfortable territory when it comes to crisis theory is the falling rate of profit. It's like this. Um, ghosts that I see everywhere. And I wanted to branch out of that and try and think about this current crisis from the ground up and think about the uh, different kinds of theories that are becoming more powerful on the left for making sense of our particular moment. And I've noticed that the neo-feudal thesis is one of the big um, ideas at the moment. Um, so I wondered if you could kind of walk me through how you started to think about this idea that, um, which I, I very much relate to, this idea that capitalism is transitioning. It appears to be capitalism is changing. It's a dynamic system. But there's this tendency, perhaps among Marxists, to think that it's almost inevitably changing into something better. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Can you tell me how you came to this if I've characterized that correctly, and how you came to think of capitalism as po possibly transitioning into something worse. Yeah, sure. First, I really appreciate your characterization because it um, the way I think about neo-feudalism as something capitalism is doing to itself. It's part of capitalism's own dynamic. Um, I think of it in terms of capital, capital's um, self-reflexivization. We can come back to that, how it's turning in on itself. Um, so it's not something happening to capitalism. It's capitalism's own dynamics um, leading in another direction. Um, I, so I, I got into this. It must have been, God, you know, 2018, 2019, I think. And I, uh, from McKinsey Work. So McKinsey Work has a book, Capital is Dead. 
and she'd been running different lectures or I'd seen you know lectures or social media posts or something like that where she'd been talking about this for a while. And at first, I'm like, this is stupid. I just totally disagree. There's no way, like, capitalist dad, what a stupid thing to think. I mean, I was really just like, did not, like, just couldn't stomach it. And um, and then, it, but it kept haunting me, like, one of those sort of things that you immediately dismiss, but it keeps, like, like attaching in your big self to you, like some kind of, like, thorn. Or, yeah, yeah, some kind of thorn or leech or a little piece of meat stuck in the tooth, but... And so I was just like, okay, like, what if I let go of my resistance for a minute and thought, like, take it seriously? What, what happens if I take this seriously? That capital is dead and, and, because she always adds, and is becoming something worse. And I found it really opening. I found it really, I found like it opened up my thinking and opened up my ability to, um, I think makes sense of tendencies in the present. So it was so it was really uh, Mackenzie work. And and where um we disagree is, you know, she has this whole approach, like the, the uh, this whole theory of like vectoralism and a vectoral class, which I really I don't find that useful or helpful. Um and she also disagrees with my language of neo-feudalism, like why go back to some old term like you know, that's not helpful. So, you know, I think that that the diagnosis that capitalism is becoming something worse is something that we share, but how to describe the something worse, what to highlight in the something worse, is where there's um, there's a lot of con- you know a lot of debate right now. And so um, I I think it's useful to talk about it as neo feudalism. And I'll just give two more reasons why, because I know we'll keep going into this. Um, one of the reasons is that the language of you know, oh my God, we're all serfs now, or tech lords, or you know, the um, the the lords and serfs of the internet. This kind of language has been around for like ten or fifteen years. So there's something where the culture itself is coughing up this imaginary, this way of understanding new kinds of unfreedom. So that's the first primary reason for me. Like unlike. In McKenzie's vectoralism, like nobody goes around saying, oh, you know, the vector, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's just like nobody. Um, but people do talk about like, oh, my God, we're all fucking surfs. Like, this is this is horrible. <laughs> and so it seems like the language the pe- that people are using. Um, and then the second thing, there's this um, right-wing um, commentator named Joel Kotkin, who has a book. I think he's, it's called Neo-Feudalism or the New Feudalism or something like this. And and he's been working the coming of neo-feudalism. And I I disagree with most of his, the the meat of the analysis, right? Like the way he understands um the the clarity as some kind of like it like it gives a lot more power to um academia than academia has. It does his analysis is not an economically informed um analysis, but it does seem to hit on some themes that are crucial. Um, and so I found that really useful. And then in fact, you know, there are other people who are writing it, like some basic liberals looking at changes in jurisprudence, the, the privatization of, of law, um, and they come through this. So it's actually, it's an interesting, um, neo-feudalism is an interesting diagnosis in part because people from radically different 
political orientations are kind of landing in the same place. That's that's really interesting because how I became interested in the neo-feudalism thesis was exactly this way. And you can say, you know, someone like Joel Kotkin, you know, I was reading his book and I was thinking, this is really descriptive and qualitative. But at the same time, that's you have to understand how something appears to understand what it is, right? And so I have no problem with um, analyses. And in fact, I think analyses of the appearance of things are very useful. And I came at it by, I just kept saying as I was, this is medieval, this is like feudalism. Um, this is, the, our notions of subjectivity, for instance, appeared increasingly backward looking or regressive or some sort of negative dialectic was happening. And that that's how I got interested in it. And that sort of clues us in that maybe there is some kind of underlying economic shift happening. Um, so I wondered, though, what is that underlying um, economic relation? Is it because it's not just a metaphor. The metaphors are, are perhaps useful because there is something shifting. But how is it not simply qualitative? How is it not simply descriptive or metaphorical? What is the actual economic relation that may be coming into being that is different than capitalism? So I think about this in a few different ways. So one way is to see a change in capital's laws of motion. So if we think that the laws of motion of capitalism basically are you know, the push for competition, profit maximization, and capital accumulation, where primarily these laws um, are supposed to generate improvements. They're supposed to lead to forms of efficiency, but they're supposed to be kind of uh, productive. They're, they're laws that are supposed to be productive and progressive. I think that these, that capital's own law, that capitalism's own laws of motion are coming into conflict with one another and turning into their opposite. So, and and in some ways, you know, this is Marx always knows that this happens under capitalism as well. So the same, um, so production can become destruction. Um, that's happening now, though, more and more. And so, in some ways, you could say like the um, you know the quantity of is turned like in a nice dialectical way. The quantity is becoming the change in quantity is becoming a change in quality. That the more that that capitalism is a mode of destruction, a mode of production becomes a mode of destruction. It becomes something else. Um, another way of another way of thinking about this is the the big um, Silicon Valley players don't follow market rules, right? They don't make profits for years and years and years. They rely on venture capital and private equity, and so um, because of that. It's like, oh, they're not actually accumulating capital. They're accumulating investment, which they eat. And then you can go to something else, which is the fact that, and this has been happening for over 20 or 30 years now, um, most corporations are not reinvesting in production. They're, give, they're building up their um, executive salaries and giving payouts to their stockholders or they're accumulating or they're um, just hoarding money. That hoarding is um, you know, old school associated with what feudal, what under the economy under feudalism, just like lords just sitting on wealth or eating it. Like you, you eat it or you sit on it. But and the, the kind of feudal imaginary is not one of investment for the sake of improvement and productivity. And that's what we have right now. So I think this is, um, it, 
you know, it hits on one of the ways that your interest in declining rate of profit um, is part of the story. So it's in addition to these, um, how these sort of lo- these laws of capital's laws of motion are turning into their opposites and coming in conflict with each other. Um, we can say, well, why is that happening? And um, here I um, accept the kind of Brenner analysis of, you know, secular stagnation, declining rate of profit. And so what happens is, um, the you know the capitalists as a class are um, turned to forms of politically driven upward redistribution of wealth. Right? They um, are in Brett Christopher's terms like um, taking, not making. So they use the political apparatus to move wealth to themselves, but not they're not using production or the productive apparatus to generate wealth. So it's like they um, instead of like baking a you know instead of a pie getting bigger and bigger, they just take a bigger, um, a bigger and bigger slice of a shrinking pie. Or, or even a slice of a pie that doesn't exist yet in the case of, of giving people debt and so on. Um, do you see what was happening during um, the COVID-19 pandemic as part of this or a disruption of this? Because one of the things that I noticed was happening was um, wh- right before there were lockdowns, if you look at the lobbying records, um, corporations were lobbying for bailouts. They weren't lobbying to get their workers to work. They were saying, oh, we need these enormous cash transfers. Uh, and it was a way of kind of what all capitalists, doing what all capitalists want to do, which is to bypass the pesky uh, production process and all of the risk that's entailed and to immediately sort of pocket profit or maybe even to pay off debts and so on. Um but of course, the, the pandemic was real, right? Um, I wonder if you see that, how you've kind of, if you've incorporated that into your thesis, and like someone like Fabio Vigi has done, or if, if how you view that situation. Oh, I, I know Fabio. I didn't know he was doing that. I'm glad to um, to hear about that. I'll, I'll look for that. So, so that's the first thing. Like, oh, um, well, Fabio. Um, I am. So it's like yes and no. Like I don't think I'm. I don't think this is um, an immediate, I don't think looking at what I'm talking about is an immediate diagnosis. I'm not trying to think about like what's happened over the last three or four years. I'm looking at the long-term repercussions of 30 years of neoliberalism, right? the evisceration of um, social safety nets. Like, So you say what capital has always done, like I wouldn't use that kind of uh, formulation because I think that there's a change in how capital and capitalists are acting. I don't think they're acting as, I mean, I don't think they're acting as economic entities that use production in order to generate a profit, which they then um, reinvest in order to expand. I don't think that, I think capital um, is acting in a different way. I don't think capitalists have always and everywhere acting the same way. I don't think capitalism is eternal. Um, And so, so that's the first thing. It just it, in the characterization of capitalism, I think it makes sense um, to try to be to try to think a little more specifically about how do capitalists act? Do they really want to just bypass, or do, do they want to bypass workers all the time, or do do they want to use workers in order to generate profits? Right? They get their uh, so um, so. There's that, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think for sure, um, you know, we saw contemporary corporations. Um, exploiting the um, pandemic in order just to fill their coffers. And it was a politically generated upward redistribution of wealth straight up. 
Right. Um, so could you give me a bit more detail about the first part? Um, you said um, that they're acting in different ways today. So could you give me some examples of, of some of the differences that you've seen in the last 30 years? I know that you've talked to Sublation in the past and you and you talked about Uber drivers and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I wrote a little bit about trucker protests and so on. And I wanted to I wanted to get a sense of how you think uh, some of the examples now of how capitalists are relating to workers and how that's maybe qualitatively di or relationally different than the past. Yeah. So what's so strange about the um, the kind of gig economy is the way that the employer employee relationship is fragmenting and separating and and you have this huge insertion of a whole sector of media of mediators who take a cut of by introducing actors on a market so the weird thing about uber is what uber is doing is just connecting um drivers and writers like it's not a company that owns a fleet of vehicles it's a mediator that connects different, um, you know, it connects riders to drivers. And we have a whole bunch of these, all those different kind of gig work platforms that connect people seeking to purchase a task and people searching, you know, searching for money um, in exchange for doing a task. So, these, so the weird thing is that in these things like, you know, TaskRabbit, Uber, they're not the employers. They're just mediators coming in and breaking relations between workers and employers. That's different, right? That's not what, that's not like, you know, oh, hey, I want to, um, I've got a store of capital. I want to be an industrialist. So I'm going to, um, you know, have a factory built and then, you know, it, get people to work in my factory where I own the means of production and they work for me. No, it's like, it's out of what, it's, it's reflexibilized. It's out of, it's, out of remo it's removed. There's an insertion of mediation. So I, to, what's interesting then is this, and the reason I think of this as a kind of neo-feudalism is this continuation of a logic of separation, um, this constant forms of separation, but creating new dependencies that weren't visible before. So what, it, so what happens now is like, like we always say, oh yeah, workers, um, like we always talk about a labor market, but we don't think about exactly the way that access to that market that can create a new relation of dependency, not just on the market, but dependency on the people who will give you access to the market for a cost. I'm very, I'm getting ahead of myself because I had all these questions that I want to ask to sort of go through, okay, this, the, the new relations of production and how things are changing. But I'm, I'm very excited because <laughs> I'm thinking about the implications of some of these things, because I think one of the more interesting aspects of the argument that you put forward in your previous discussion with us with um uh, with Alfie Bown on on uh, sci-fi was you were talking about and of course you've written about this but you were talking about how the it's not like the capitalist owns the means of production as you've just said you own the means of production and it's a meet they become a mediator and it, you just think like well all you have to do then is cut out the middleman but that's always been our task isn't it <laughs> <laughs> that's always been our task as workers um i i mean just i'm i'm, I'm a little allergic to the language of always i know right? i realized like, it when I, it came out of I, my mouth yeah um you know the weird thing is um 
the internet was sold to us as eliminating the middleman, right? Like, oh, it'll be, um, it will be, you know, you can do everything directly. Everyone can do whatever they want directly. But no, it actually was the opposite. It was the increase, in, the increased presence of more and more and more mediators you know, at just every level, right? Like, you, um, and this is one of the things I, one of the reasons I think it, it, that the thinking of this as a kind of serfdom is, we can't not produce for some of these mediators. We don't have a choice. Like our everyday actions, our productive actions, our reproductive, as in like communicative actions, um, produce um, forms of income for these mediators. So they, they always take some kind of cut, whether or not they take it in the form of um, claim to ownership of our data, claim to ownership of our meta metadata or our traces, or just the little bits of the little fees and fines um, and permissions that they extract from us as, as rents. But we're in a position now as um, depend that where we cannot not but produce for the um, you know economic and financial benefit of these overlords. Right. That's the kind of weird serfdom right there. Right. Everything we do, they actually kind of own. Um, so the, on this language of always, that's actually one of the major criticisms of this thesis that isn't this giving it to it, giving capitalism too much credit, you know, taking too seriously its own self-identification as uh, or the, the its own myths like that we are free buyers and sellers meeting in the marketplace and this is gone. Therefore we don't have uh, capitalism anymore. It hasn't this always been the case. One example, or hasn't it always been the case that middlemen try to insert themselves between the factory and, you know, you've got your shops and then you've got your advertising and you've got your distribution channels and everybody wants a cut. Um, and the history of capitalism is kind of characterized by people trying to get in into that uh, distribution line somewhere between the object and the consumer. Wait, what was the first, say the first part of your question again, because there was two parts. Can you say the first part again? Sure. So there's, uh, people will say that it's giving it too much credit, giving capitalism too much credit. Okay, yeah. That this um, is just the way capitalism really works. Let's, um, let's, let's look at that part first and then the mediators part. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, we can we can think about how there's a there's a difference between expropriation and exploitation, right? Expropriation is just taking, right? So that I that somebody takes my money. If there's a bully on my corner, and every day I walk by, and he takes you know he takes some of my money, that doesn't mean our that, that is not a capitalist relation. That's a relation just a blanket expropriation. Now, if um. Every day I go to work in, you know, go to work for him. And um, I don't know, let's say I'm making sandwiches, then that he's going to go sell in the neighborhood and he's going to pay me for that. That's a capitalist relation. One involves um, a wage the and production. And the other one is just taking. So now, is it the case that capitalist has, capitalism has been intertwined with expropriation? Sure. But can we, in, can we analytically recognize two different kinds, uh, two different forms of the um, 
um, production and taking of a surplus? Yes. And if we don't say that, then we can't even think capitalism. If we think everything is expropriation, then we have no way to distinguish between just, you know, bullies taking stuff and capitalist economic forms. Marx himself, of course, as you well know, makes these distinctions, right? He's, he thinks, as he, as he says, he says just even being just the bubble manifesto, like nothing's changed but the form, right? From between the, um, you know, the master slave, the Lord serf, and the bourgeois, the proletariat. Um, there's always, and the taking of the, um, of the, of the proceeds of the productive labor of the laboring class, but how, but the form of it changes. If we don't recognize the difference between exploitation and expropriation, um, we can't see that. And so I think it's, and this is actually why, um, in some ways, the debates, the debates around are, are Uber workers, independent contractors, or are they employees? That's really interesting, right? Like capitalism itself, its bourgeois legal structures are grappling with the meaning and the changes in labor. So at least, you know, at least the capitalist class doesn't think that this, everything is the same. Like they're arguing about it. And I think that's a good hint that something is changing. Oh, that's really interesting. And and also, if you look at people who are part of the gig economy, they will say things like, um, well, I don't want to work for somebody. Why would it be so great yeah. to be an employee? So in that sense, there's like, I don't know, I suppose you could say a progressive progressive side to it in the way that the shift from capitalism, uh, neo, sorry, the shift from feudalism to capitalism had a progressive side where, you know, as a serf, you're no longer chained to the land. You're free to work for any capitalist that will take you, but you are not free to not do that. You still are stuck in this kind of relation. Yeah, it's, 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 it's I mean, we have to always remember to be dialectical. It's not going to be like a one-sided, like something might appear as free, it might really be free. It might be free in one way and not free in another way. But I mean, the you know the the so-called free workers and Marx often uses that expression in Capital is um, really free because they are freed from their own means of subsistence. Right. Um, so now within so we have all of these shifts. We have the gig economy, for example, is a big uh, a big part of this. Do you see it extending in any other areas within capitalism? I, I read something recently that I thought was compelling, which was the, how gigification is encompassing more and more parts of life. So it's not exact. And I sort of think about that just like with, with the academic work, like, you know, how many academics uh, do podcasts and academics? Like so much of ours, like when we write, it's not like we make a living, most of us as writers. So that's also a kind of gig. And then, you know, you get paid for um, reviewing for some presses. Sometimes we get, you know, get paid for giving talks. Um, we get paid for, you know, um, writing for some publications, not for others, but you kind of craft those over to help supplement what for many academics are increasingly bad for a position. And then you've got all adjunct labor. That's a kind of gigification that's um, really, um, and, and then the way that there are new aggregators, like these education aggregators are trying to swoop up um, that kind of work. In housing, we see, they, um, we see that some of these big banks have, per- have bought into um, real estate aggregators that purchase houses that they will then rent to people to let them buy to own. 
And so the person is not having like a direct relation just with their own mortgage company or even the mortgage company being owned by other mortgage companies, but is in this weird limbo where in fact they never have any relation either to a landlord or to their own or or to like a, a bank through which they hold a mortgage. But there's this these different layers of holding companies. So again, the insertion of intermediaries in which people are increasingly caught with no ability to escape. So I think you can see, so that's more of the consumption side um, example as opposed to a labor side, but it'd be another example. Yeah, universities are a really good example of this. I don't think you can find, like I had trouble finding any full-time positions even advertised in Canada. It's all piecework. Everything is piecework. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing. But um, can we... Can we think about this? Are you sort of averse to the idea of thinking about this in terms of following it to its logical conclusions? Do you see this spreading? Is this a, could we viably transfer into a world that is entirely neo-feudal? I mean, at the moment we have obviously a mix of things. Lots of people still exist in these typical kind of employer-employee relationships. Um, but do you see this as something that's expanding, spreading, that could become the dominant form at some point, even in the far future? Um, yeah, I just reviewed um, Quinn Slobodian's Crack Up Capitalism for the LA Review of Books. And I thought, it, from my perspective, it was a great global example of neo-feudalizing tendencies. Um, and what's so brilliant in Slobodian's book is has emphasis on zones. And there are apparently like over 5,000 different zones all over the world. And these zones are um, places where states have carved out of themselves territories that are not subject to um, their laws. And so we usually think of things like special economic zones, but then you have um, free ports, you have tax havens, um, these are just, a, these are like the few different kinds of names that I remember there. You know, there's um, the um, the basic idea of these zones. It's like It comes from actually the forms of commerce that were prevalent right in the late Middle Ages, early Mediterranean period, where um, storage ports and three ports the, across the Mediterranean coast would be places uh, where the, that country would not, or that city would not apply its own laws, but the merchant would be able to have their own um, tiny mini territory that would where they would um, basically they would be sovereign. So it's this part, this kind of carving up of sovereignty. You see this like um, what was his name? The Pioneer Boris Johnson. Um, this wanted to establish like ten different um, free, like free zone city or like free economic cities um, in the UK. Um, there's some of these Docklands areas in the city of London. Much also the city of London. Um, itself because it doesn't put the regular laws uh, the rest of the city don't apply to it um, and then Trump had a number of these you know, sort of economic empowerment zone they've gone in, in Honduras they're all over the Middle East so this is one of the things these, these zones are clear examples of parcelated sovereignty which are crucial to understanding neo-feudalism so we've spent most of the first part of the conversation on the economic aspects but you know when it's crucial to the very to, to my notion of neo-feudalism and to the kind of classic feudal notion is 
that um, feudalism merged the political and the economic, right? So unlike the bourgeois um, separation between the two, they're merged. And these these um, zones that Slobodian talks about are really great um, examples of this. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>